Hello, this is Jordan Rain introducing the very first podcast from the People's Assembly Against Austerity. So going out on the 28th of February 2015, podcast number one. In this podcast, David Cameron introduces a youth labour plan that will force young people to work for free. We have an interview with Sam Fairbain, the Secretary of the People's Assembly Against Austerity, about the pay-to-protest move by police. We also have Greece continuing to fight against privatisation and austerity whilst extending its loan period. We have an article on climate change, why the idea of voting blue and being green is a bit like drinking for sobriety. And last of all, upcoming actions, the part where you get to take part. Starting with Mr Cameron, who last week announced plans to implement a youth labour programme requiring unemployed people to work for free. His aim? To abolish long-term unemployment by requiring young people without jobs to work for nothing. Sadly, this idea is not new and has been implemented in European countries in Australia and New Zealand alike. A study by Jeff Borland at the University of Melbourne showed important general lessons on the effect of youth labour market programmes. Firstly, there's the lock-in effect. Workers who have participated in the scheme are less likely to be given paid work. More significantly, in a quote, it also supports other studies that have found a major problem with participation in labour market programmes to be the reduction in job search efforts that results, i.e. those involved in these programmes find it very difficult to find the time to seek paid work. What it means is that Frances O'Grady of the Trade Unions Congress was quite justified when she publicly declared that Cameron's government is an economy designed to work against young people. Sally Hunt of the University and Colleges Union added that what young people need is politicians who have a plan to help them, not subject them to scapegoating. Given that we know it doesn't work, why is Cameron suggesting it? Forcing young people into unpaid work does not seem a likely way to increase the popularity of the Tory government in the eyes of a group that has failed so badly. Youth unemployment has risen, as have university fees under the current government. But what forced labour programmes do offer is the potential to re-rig statistics. For example, the number of young people in full-time work has risen. Is a statement that leaves out the fact that the number of young people in paid full-time work may actually have dropped. So don't be surprised if the Tory government come back to us closer to election time with statistics designed to make them look like heroes to the very people they have led into lock-in patterns of unemployment. Second on the list, more great ideas from London from the Metropolitan Police this time. We talked to Sam Fairbin at the People's Assembly on the pay-to-protest initiative. Hi Sam, can you briefly outline the status of the pay-to-protest idea for us? Yeah, sure. Well, essentially what's happened uh, is that the Metropolitan Police have taken a decision in the last couple of months that they will no longer be facilitating the closure of roads for demonstrations or protests anymore. Um, Now, this is a massive shift away from how protests have been organised for decades, actually. It's always been that protesters go to the police, we inform the police of uh, our intentions, and we instruct them to close the road to make sure that the demonstration can run safely to accommodate the number of people that we're going to be expecting on the protest. Now, they've made a decision in the last couple of months and have told organisers of demonstrations that uh, they'll no longer be doing this and that it's up to the organisers of protests to hire private companies to facilitate the closure of roads and to come up with traffic management plans uh, at a cost of tens of thousands of pounds to the organisers uh, of any demonstrations. So my next question would be what the implications are to the general public, particularly when they feel strongly on issues affecting them. 
What this essentially means is that organisations will be unable to put on protests unless they've got rich backers, unless they've got uh, tens of thousands of pounds to do it. So we're seeing it as a political attack uh, on the right to protest in Britain in an attempt to prevent the number of protests that are going to be taking place over the next few months or for the future. Have the police given any sound justification as to why we should suddenly need to pay to protest? Well, I think this is uh, politically motivated. They're saying that it's uh, due to budget cuts, uh, and no doubt the police are facing budget cuts. But the fact is that protest is a fundamental right, and I believe that this is, uh, given that we've had five years of austerity, of a government that's that's attempting to rip apart everything that working people have fought for and won for the last generation, we've got a very, very unpopular government in Britain and even if you look across Europe there's been massive massive uh, protests demonstrations all these kind of things which has led to some very very radical changes in those countries you just need to look at Greece Syriza was elected on the back of a mass movement on the streets now I think the government's scared that the same thing will happen here um, if we manage to pull together a mass movement against austerity I think it's a politically motivated attack to prevent people from protesting and to attempt any kind of resistance to what's going on. Would you say that in targeting protesters there is an admittance that protesting still has a lot of power to change things in the UK? What they don't want you to know is that protests do actually have a big impact on society and they don't want that to happen. They see that if we do get big demonstrations it will start to shift, uh, it will have a big impact on society. Not that they'll ever say that to you but... What would you say to the taxpayers that are actually convinced by the argument that they will be saving money somehow in the long run by making people to pay to protest? Well, what I'd say firstly is that everybody that comes on a demonstration, or most people presume the majority, uh, pay their taxes anyway, and uh, policing is a part of the tax that we pay. So I think it's important, you know, this is our public money, and these kind of events are public events. It's not like it's a private event that we're organising. These are public events, public demonstrations, um, and an important part of the political democratic process uh, in in any democracy, so you're going down a very dangerous road when you start to limit the right of uh, of the populations to protest for financial reasons or because it's going to cost the taxpayer money. Well, actually, this is one of the only ways that we can exercise our democratic right, and this is an important thing that we must continue to do. It's got a long tradition. Thanks very much for your time, Sam. And um, there we all have it. Protesting does work. So at the end of the podcast, of course, we have a list of the actions coming up. So tune in for that because the next big one is the Climate Change March, which is on the 7th of March in London. And there will be more on that in the article that follows Greece, which we're going to talk about next, and who have, of course, been at the forefront of austerity debate of late. Of course, there is plenty of information out there on the web, but for various reasons, mainstream media often obfuscates the central issues around Greece's situation. So we did want to look at the history of Greece since its entry into the EU and the implications that that has on their current situation. Debt recovery via austerity has been in place since George Papandreou's 2010 response to the figures revealed on Greece's actual level of debt after its entry into the Eurozone. Even then, austerity programmes met with violent protest, and with a deepening of austerity measures over the years that followed, Greece's situation did not improve. In 2012, Greece borrowed from the IMF and the ECB in an effort to stave off bankruptcy. For anyone unsure about how the IMF and the ECB work, they are often termed the banks of last resort. They're the banks who lend money when no one else will or can. 
So alongside the fiscal discipline program that all euro currency countries must adhere to, the price for borrowing from the IMF and the ECB is rationalisation, a word used to pretty up what is actually itself a program of austerity measures, privatisation and structural changes that bring a country in line with what global and European capitalism believes to be the one-size-fits-all solution to economic problems. Privatisation means a potential for foreign investment, which also means the potential for foreign control over infrastructure and resources. We've seen this in countless countries wracked by instability and poverty. The countries of former Yugoslavia, for example, along with Hungary and Ireland, all of whom have been forced into selling off local businesses and publicly owned infrastructure at rock-bottom prices to pay back debt. When we privatise health, education and transport, access is restricted to those who can afford it. In a country wracked by poverty, you essentially rob the people of access to health, welfare and education. You also make those countries into markets for, and cheap producers of, foreign-owned goods. This, and the ongoing poverty of the Greek people, is exactly what Greek Finance Minister Yanis Varoufakis hopes to avoid. And of course, pro-rationalisation presses have consistently accused Greece of being unprepared to negotiate, but negotiation of repayment terms is exactly what Greece has been seeking for the past few weeks. This week, Greece requested a four-month extension on its current loan plan. The conditions on how it will recoup the debt, however, continue to be the burning point. Christine Lagarde, the head of the IMF, said the Greek menu of policies was not sufficiently specific and did not go far enough. She singled out VAT, pension and labour market reforms and privatisation as issues. Greece is, of course, in the very precarious position of balancing the needs of its people with the demands of banking systems and pro-rationalisation EU institutions. Having promised the Greek people that austerity measures would be eased, while simultaneously attempting to appease the demand for more privatisation by the IMF, Greece's proposal does indeed leave room for manoeuvre, which is perhaps where Lagarde's criticism comes from. Increased specificity on issues of privatisation and labour reforms would tie Greece into the trajectory that increasingly deprives them of both their own assets and the ability to feed its people. Addressing the issues one by one, let's look at what Greece says in the proposal laid out this week. Privatisation Whilst privatisation deals that have already been approved will not be retracted by Greece, the wording on new deals is as follows. Further privatisations will be considered with a view to improving the terms so as to maximise the state's long-term benefits, generate revenues, enhance competition in the local economies, promote national economic recovery and stimulate long-term growth prospects. In terms of Greece's proposal to implement a minimum wage, the wording is as follows. Greece will phase in a new smart approach to collective wage bargaining that balances the need for flexibility with fairness. This includes the ambition to streamline and over time raise minimum wages in a manner that safeguards competitiveness and employment prospects. Greece's proposal also outlines their proposed reaction to the poverty crisis. The wording is as follows. Greece will address the needs arising from the recent rise in absolute poverty in brackets, inadequate access to nourishment, shelter, health services and basic energy provision, end brackets, by means of highly targeted non-pecuniary measures, i.e. food stamps. Greece will do so in a manner that is helpful to the reforming of public administration and the fight against bureaucracy and corruption. Greece will evaluate a pilot minimum guaranteed income scheme with a view to extending it nationwide. Now, of course, some of the presses are calling this a U-turn or voter betrayal. However, the non-specificity does seem to be in the areas required to give its citizens some power over their own resources in a way for easing austerity. 
Greece also indicates an intention to recoup its debt via ensuring taxes are paid by the rich. The document reads that Greece will work towards creating a new culture of tax compliance to ensure that all sections of society, and especially the well-off, contribute fairly to the financing of public policies. Of course, it is exactly these specific details that are still being argued back and forth, and no answer is expected on them until April. So doubtless Greece will feature again in the People's Assembly Against Austerity podcast. To climate change, in an article by Elaine Graham Lee, a long-standing campaigner on climate change, who chairs the North London People's Assembly. Back in 2010, before the last election, Tories courting the environmentally conscious vote claimed that you could vote blue and get green, and that theirs would be the greenest government ever. Last year, in the run-up to the next election, they capped their term of inaction on climate change with a demonstration of how far they really are committed to environmental sustainability. They persuaded the EU to include in their definition of renewable energy, nuclear power and fracking. That it was not in fact possible to vote blue and get green may not be much of a surprise. What should also be unsurprising is that this dismal record on climate change comes from the same government imposing austerity on us. Climate change and austerity are two sides of the same coin. The logic behind the austerity agenda is that the state should be shrunk as far as possible. We shouldn't have public services, health, education, social care and so on. Instead, these should be provided by the private sector for us to buy if we can afford it. In the same way, the right's response to climate change is to look to private companies to provide environmentally friendly options for power generation, transport and all the other activities which generate carbon emissions. The problem is that slashing our carbon emissions requires green infrastructure, which private investment is not going to create. We need to be putting solar panels on every suitable roof, creating wind farms in the places where they won't disturb people or the landscape but will generate electricity, building wave power installations wherever there are the right conditions. Some of this is happening on a smaller scale already. Take-up of domestic solar power was up in 2014, for example. However, a major immediate shift to renewable power generation needs planning. Recent studies have shown that it would be possible for us to get all of our electricity... Recent studies have shown that it would be possible for us to get all of our electricity from renewable sources, including enough to switch much of our use of gas to electricity. But this large-scale change in how the national grid works could only happen through coordinated government action, and that means public sector spending, not austerity. The Campaign Against Climate Change's One Million Green Jobs report estimates that creating the jobs needed to build and run green energy and transport will cost $66 billion. This sounds like a considerable sum, but put it in context. Closing loopholes to end tax evasion could net the government $74 billion. In addition, creating jobs can stimulate the economy, creating a positive feedback loop where people who are unemployed and have money to spend therefore create more employment when they spend it. They also, of course, pay tax on their earnings to the government, rather than costing the state money and even the current dismal level of unemployment benefits. The advantages of creating a green energy infrastructure for the climate and for the economy are so obvious that it is only the logic of austerity, with its commitment to the interests of private corporations and investors over everyone else, that makes the million green jobs proposal seem at all outlandish. The fight against austerity is a fight against the neoliberal agenda which places profits before people. The struggle to deal with climate change before it's finally too late is similarly a fight against the ideology that says that nothing can be done to lower emissions unless someone can also make money from it. 
Climate change is not a technological problem. We have the technology now to generate all the power we need without creating carbon emissions. What stands in the way of the urgent action we need to preserve life on this planet as we know it is a political will to spend public money on the solutions which we already know exist. The campaign against climate change's Time to Act demonstration on the 7th of March 2015 is a call for that political will and a demand for a fossil-free future. Anyone and everyone who is fighting austerity should be on it. Now that was an article by Elaine Graham, who is, um, as I said, a long-standing campaigner on climate change and who chairs the North London People's Assembly. She also has a book, A Diet of Austerity, Class, Food and Climate Change, that will be published by Zero Books in April. So stay tuned to the website and the podcast for more details on that. Now, the last section of the podcast is dedicated to upcoming events and actions. So, of course, top of the list is the 7th of March, 2015, the Time to Act Climate Change Demo. So that is at Lincoln's Inn Field in London, WC2A3, and that starts at 12.30pm. It's a Saturday, so make sure you're there. Other upcoming events are, of course, the People's Question Times, which are a series that run all over England. If you're not aware of them, head to the website and check them out. The next one is March the 5th, the People's Question Time. For those of you in Norwich, head along to Epic Studios in Norwich, United Kingdom. It starts at 7pm. That's a Thursday. We have a People's Question Time in Bristol on Tuesday the 10th of March. Head to the City Road Baptist Church Stokes Croft, Bristol, BS28TP. Again, the details are on the website. If you head to the events section of the website at www.thepeoplesassembly.org.uk, you will get up-to-the-minute information on actions and events that are going on throughout the UK. So we hope to see you and meet you at some of them. Until then, we'll leave you with this song, which is the free download for this episode for those of you that are supporting us on Patreon that's patreon.com you can find us on there and support the fight against austerity via supporting the podcast this particular track is a message to New Zealand's Prime Minister a man called John Key who is sadly also a big fan of austerity the track is Dear John by Jordan Rain yep yours truly that's my other job see you next time bye Your fiscal year